0: Hello and welcome to the latest Hollywell Trust Conversations podcast. My name is Fiona Corvin and I am the Development Manager with Hollywell Trust. I'm joined today by our researcher, Paul Gosling. Uh, Hello, Paul. Hi, Fiona. Paul, can you explain what we are discussing today and why?
1: Ah, Thanks, Fiona. Northern Ireland has a serious crisis of violence against women, in particular within the home. It's been widely reported that the rate of murder of women in Northern Ireland connected to domestic violence is nearly the highest in the whole of Europe, and, of course, the issue goes far beyond murder and even beyond domestic violence. There's a wider context of intimidation within the home, emotional abuse, bullying, and coercive control. Uh, While this is not exclusively conducted by men on their female partners, this is the most common type of domestic abuse.
0: So, Paul, that is the context um, and it sounds worrying. Is it? Is it getting worse?
1: Yes. Uh, it was widely said that the extent of domestic violence increased as a result of the Covid pandemic and the lockdown. Partners who might not normally have spent that much time together now found themselves locked up with each other for 24 hours a day. And this triggered a lot of conflict, sometimes leading to violence. However, the statistics suggest this is not the whole picture. In what way? Because domestic violence continued to increase after the pandemic was over, or at least the reported rate went up. Uh, we can never be certain whether the violence has increased or if it's the reporting that's increased, not least because it's been talked about much more.
0: So, what are the figures then?
1: So, in the year ending March, there were 32,875 incidents of domestic abuse reported in Northern Ireland to the PSNI. That's a slight fall over the previous year after a Consistent period of increases. Uh, domestic abuse related crimes increased last year with more than 22,000 criminal incidents logged. To put that in context, there are 1.8 domestic abuse incidents for every 100 people in the population of Northern Ireland. That is for one year, and that is the reported number. So that's why we can talk about it as a crisis. It represents about 20% of all reported crime in Northern Ireland.
0: And so, those figures um, that are recorded, are they broken down according to the type of incident?
1: Yes, yes, they, they are recorded in that way, Bella Pierce and I. The highest number relate to violence without injury. The second most common are violence with injury. The third most common is harassment. And the next most common, uh, which are less frequent, uh, are criminal damage, theft, sexual viol- offences, and, uh, and breaches of non-melastation orders. Uh, the incidents involving violence and harassment have increased the most.
0: And we have also seen murders and suicides emerge from domestic violence as well, yeah?
1: Yeah, sadly, uh, that is right. Uh, There were eight what were termed domestic abuse homicides recorded in the 22-23 year in Northern Ireland, one of which was actually committed a few years before, but only recorded as such in that year. Uh, In the previous years, there were eight, nine, five, four and 11 homicides in each year. Now, in some years, almost half of murders in Northern Ireland have been related to domestic violence. And that's without taking into account suicides that have followed on from years of domestic abuse and coercive control. And that's a point that was raised in the BBC television documentary in the last few days.
0: That really is um, sobering statistics. So... What about the situation in the Derry and Straban District Council area? What, what does that look like?
1: Uh, well, Derry and Straban, I'm afraid, has the third highest level of reported domestic abuse uh, behind uh, Belfast and Amar. Uh There were more than 3,000 domestic abuse incidents and more than 2,000 rel- related crimes in Derry and Straban in each of the last two years, with the numbers increasing.
0: Also worrying. So what about more generally? What do we know? about the extent of violence against women and girls.
1: Yeah, this is something that uh, the the government in Northern Ireland has has been getting research done on uh, in order to try and develop policies. Uh, as part of that, it commissioned both Ulster University and Queen's to to produce reports looking at uh, the, the background of this. Now, the Ulster University report, which was published quite recently, is actually, in a way, even more disturbing than the PSNI figures.
0: In, in what way is, is it more disturbing?
1: Well, Austria University's report found that almost every woman surveyed 98% had experienced some form of violence or abuse during their lifetime, and 7 out of 10 experienced this in the previous year.
0: That's, well, that's really, really worrying. Um, this isn't all related to domestic abuse.
1: No, it isn't. And the very worst incidents of violence and abuse are most... Commonly committed by strangers. They constituted 29% of the cases. Uh, But a partner was responsible for 23% of the incidents, a friend or acquaintance, 19% of those cases, and more than a quarter of the incidents took place in the victim's own home. What is most disturbing of all is that in most instances, the victim felt unable to report or talk about the incidents because of shame and embarrassment. Only in a third of cases, could the woman or the girl feel able to report the incident or even talk about it. Uh, I should add that the authors surveyed 542 women, so it, it was a reasonably large survey.
0: That is a large survey indeed, and I know certainly anecdotally amongst them, um, like my friends and peers, as we're getting older, this conversation is coming up uh, more frequently, and that is that's very much in line with what the re- reality is. Certainly, amongst um, those women and girls that I know, that's. Uh, Really, really worrying. There was also some research uh, recently published by Queen's University, Paul. Did this reach the same conclusions?
1: Uh, Much the same, yes, uh, Fiona. Uh, The work by Queen surveyed girls aged between 12 and 17. This found that three quarters, 83 percent in fact, had experienced at least one incident of violence in their lifetime. So the work of the two universities produced consistent evidence.
0: Wow. So we spoke earlier on in this podcast about Northern Ireland having one of the highest rates of domestic violence against women leading to murder in the whole of Europe. Where do those figures
1: come from? Now, different figures have been collated by different organisations and, of course, they change each year. Now, FatChak and I looked in 2019 at the statistics for the 2017 year. They found that the rate adjusted for population size in Northern Ireland of murder resulting from domestic violence was twice that of the other three UK nations. They also found it was the second highest in Western Europe behind Finland, joint with Hungary. Um, From what I've seen, that's a consistent situation across the years. However, should add that Eurostat did produce figures saying that the rate in Northern Ireland and Romania were the joint worst in Europe, but the PSNI has challenged the reliability of those statistics.
0: So that poses the big question then, why is the situation so much worse in Northern Ireland than elsewhere?
1: I don't think we have clear evidence around that, uh, but there are some factors which I think we can probably point to with confidence. Uh, And I suggest there must be cultural issues around this. The first is obviously the troubles. We know with certainty that there is multi-generational trauma. Lots of studies have concluded that. So the psychological damage of the troubles not only affected those who lived through it, But it was passed down to their sons and daughters, as well as the trauma. There's also the social legitimization of violence that cannot be ignored or underestimated. Then we have other factors such as drug and alcohol use and the stress related to the high levels of poverty and deprivation. Now, Fiona, perhaps you have your own thoughts on the reasons.
0: Um, I have some thoughts. I do. um, I think that there is an indication of some issues regarding uh, like cultural. and the past of the culture. But I also think that the issues of deprivation um, and lack of social mobility here play a huge role in this. Um, and I think culturally, here, society is made up a bit differently, even in terms of the role that, that women play in workplaces um, and in wider society. Um, I think that there could be a lot more done um, to advance things, and perhaps also the relationship that people have with them like law enforcement and the PSNI. Um, and there may be some some challenges around that. But aside from my thoughts, my hopes are that this is a circumstance that improves over time and, and does not worsen. So, Paul, can you advise us what new laws have come into place uh, to protect women and other victims who are suffering from domestic abuse, coercive control and violence in their own home?
1: Yes, uh, you're quite correct, uh, Fiona. A new offence was introduced last year which extended the definition of domestic abuse to include non-physical abuse. That includes uh, coercive control, intimidation and the psychological, emotional or financial abuse of a person. And that also includes the use of digital and other technologies. More than a thousand people have been arrested in the last year as a result of this new law. And that law has also been strengthened in the Republic, which has also provided new obligations on employers to provide support to staff who are dealing with domestic abuse.
0: Well, that's welcome news, um, and it's good to see that new uh, legislation is making some positive change. So, Paul, um, thank you for explaining that. Who are our interviewees this week?
1: Our first interview uh, is with Elaine Crory, who's a lobbyist with the Women's Resource and Development Agency, which is campaigning against sexual harassment and violence in Northern Ireland. Now, she explained the campaign and suggested why this is such a major problem here.
0: Great stuff. Um, so let's listen to Elaine and hear what she has to say. So the campaign really came about, um, and, and speaking specifically
2: here of projects like Raise Your Voice and other work we've done around that, like as women's sector lobbyists, I've been leading quite a lot on violence against women and girls generally, but specifically on those areas that often fall through the cracks of traditional um, work. So you have, for example, women's aid, obviously, speak about domestic abuse in all its forms, including sexual violence within relationships. But there's all sorts of other sexual harassment, sexual violence in general, that doesn't fall into that category. And, you know, who's who's speaking and organizing around that? Very, by and large, it's it's activist organizations. It's things like Reclaim the Night, uh, and it's movements that used to be Hollaback, it's now called Right to Be, um, that was based in the United States there's various, and often youth organizations are are run by students and they last a little while and then they kind of fade out. And what we wanted to do was both to have a larger um, kind of regional wide, Northern Ireland wide uh, project around sexual harassment that falls in between those cracks as well as the stuff that fits more neatly within relationships and so forth. But also we wanted to give that sustainability and to have it um, Kind of link up with other organizations and uh, so that we're speaking about sexual harassment and sexual violence as a whole as a full phenomenon and not as a discrete part of something else so one of the things that we did um, at the beginning of this was sit down and think about what's missing from the public conversation at the moment and it was around the time in the aftermath of a very high profile uh, rape trial um during which a lot of public conversation had happened including things like newspaper articles and podcasts and everything else you can think of in the media but also public conversation you know things like in your workplace uh, kitchen and you know over your own kitchen table and in pubs and so forth around what is consent what is sexual harassment what is pushing it too far what is um what is acceptable banter or acceptable flirting it was just after the me too movement Um, And it was time really to have an organized conversation around that and to start um, plugging into those gaps. And so we did something that a lot of the activist groups didn't have capacity to do because they were voluntary entirely, which was to connect up uh, all those conversations, do do public workshops where we talk about and explore those things around consent, around what is sexual harassment, uh, what is acceptable and what is not. but also to do some sort of lobbying around that and, and to, to have it more on the agenda. And, you know, we were part of that conversation, by no means the only group pushing for it, but part of that conversation around having upskirting and downblousing criminalised, which we just, um, just come onto the books this week, in fact, uh, you know, because it's one of those things that it didn't fit neatly into the category of something like domestic abuse because it's often from a stranger. But it it is very much sexual harassment. And we talked about online harassment as well. And the various different ways that, you know, as technology evolves, sexual harassment evolves. It, as many new technologies as will exist in 5 or 10 or 15 years in the future, there'll be new ways of using that to harass and abuse people, unfortunately, unless we do something about the attitudes behind it.
1: Which I think takes us, Elaine, on to the the point we're focusing on particularly in the podcast which is violence against women within relationships now clearly we have a global crisis but we've got a worse crisis than anywhere else pretty well in Northern Ireland what do you think the 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 factors are behind this and why is it happening now even more than in the past apparently and
2: just so as you say it is a global problem there isn't a single society on earth That is untouched by this kind of thing and you know our answer as a feminist organization would be the reason behind all of this is is kind of patriarchal oppression but that takes different forms in different societies and different societies by virtue of their history of their culture sometimes religion plays a role etc they will have different manifestations of the same thing and it'll be worse and better in some places so one of the problems in Northern Ireland is the the thing that's, that's the underlying looming problem behind nearly every social problem we have now is our history of conflict. So here we are, the better part of 30 years after a ceasefire, and an awful lot of the the wrongs done during that time have not been properly addressed. So we have become quite used in this society, I think, to justice not being done. And um, that doesn't mean to say that people accept it. There's obviously, there's an awful lot of families and organizations still pushing for justice for terrible wrongs done 50 years ago. But as a society, collectively, we kind of, um, there's a big movement to kind of just not talk about it and move on. But also because such great wrongs were done in the public eye, sometimes in the public square, quite literally, in the full sight of everyone, and they didn't get justice, there's almost a feeling like, well, how are you expecting justice for this thing that happened to you in, in the privacy of your own home and that you're still here to talk about? Should you not be grateful nearly that you're still here? Now, obviously, nobody is phrasing it in exactly that form, but it just became of lesser importance collectively in the public interest. There were too many much more urgent things on people's minds. And now that that time has passed and things have moved on, um, I think that attitude still hangs around, that attitude of, listen, on the big scheme of things, this is not that big a deal. But also, we have a very macho culture here. And it's evident in the fact that whenever you speak about these issues, including, for example, when Women's Aid and others were leading a campaign to try and get a violence against women and girls strategy, we now have a draft version of that. But it's our first ever draft. And we still don't have the actual strategy. And even when they started opening their conversation and MLA started to speak about it publicly, and then there was a vote in the assembly, Throughout all that time, there was a lot of public backlash of people saying, well, why are you making it out like this is a bigger problem than it really is? Every time there's a, a tragic, you know, horrendous murder of a woman or a girl in this place, this conversation comes up again. Why are you making it seem like it's a bigger problem than it is? Or why are you pointing the figure, finger at all men? And the answer is, we're not pointing the finger at all men, apart from the actual individual person or people who responsible for the act. There's a big, we're, we're pointing the finger at a culture, not at, at men as individuals, but as at a culture that has enabled this to happen. And for a very, very long time throughout the conflict, as well as these great injustices that took most of the public attention, it was also the reality that the police weren't particularly trusted by approximately half the community. And by the other half of the community, the police came from that community by and large. And so very often there was a feeling of, a lack of privacy and also sometimes you know police's hands weren't fully clean either it is still true and this is not unique to Northern Ireland that there is a problem with domestic abuse and sexual violence within the police force um, and perhaps it's, it's that degree of power that actually attracts some people like that to a role like police in the first place. And so police haven't always been safe to report to. Um, That's true everywhere, but it was particularly true here during the conflict. And an awful lot of these things were dealt with, quote-unquote, in-house, which realistically meant by paramilitaries. And, of course, paramilitaries were abusers too. Not only were they abusers, they were abusers with arms, you know, with with weapons and with connections. And we still have problems with people who were maybe in the past in relationships with uh, people connected with paramilitaries, um, who, when they go to re- leave an abusive relationship with a man who is like, basically professionally violent, uh, not only do they have to leave him, but they have to leave the whole network in their community. So when we talk about paramilitaries holding communities in coercive control, that also includes the individuals who are sometimes in relationships with those paramilitaries. So it's a real, um, it's a historical problem. It's an ongoing problem because, as we know, paramilitaries are still very active. But also it's a, it's a bigger cultural problem and we have a real discomfort with sometimes pointing that out because I don't think we've got used to having mature conversations about this in our society yet. We need to get there.
0: Thanks to Elaine for that. That was really interesting.
1: Yes, uh, and our second interview is with the Belfast Health and Social Care Trust. Uh, their uh, senior staff, Samantha Wong and Orla Barron, who have won an award from the Healthcare People Management Association for their production of a Domestic and Sexual Violence and Abuse Support Toolkit, which supports staff who are victims of violence and abuse.
0: It's really heartening to hear that there's uh, positive change. Um, so let's listen to Orla and Samantha and hear more about the positive work they're doing uh, to make a difference for their staff and for others.
3: So I suppose uh, the context of this was we have had uh, domestic abuse uh, and sexual abuse policy and support service in situ now for 15 years um, and it's set to um, support staff Mm -hmm. in the workplace who are experiencing domestic abuse um, and the fact that it isn't uh, something that they can leave at the front gate when they arrive for work every day and impacts on every facet of their life. So we um, feel that we as an employer have uh, a duty of care to support our staff whilst they're at work. Um, and the support service is all about uh, we have trained volunteers who um, then meet with the person to give them uh, practical support in the workplace and to offer them some emotional support as well Um, and I suppose during COVID times when people were forced to stay at home um, domestic abuse became a a whole different um, aspect and we needed to be able to communicate with our staff so the idea was That we would have this digital toolkit which would replicate all the information that the support officers would give um, and also provide access to people for them to um, access the support that they needed uh, independently as well.
1: And what does that mean practically for your staff who are either receiving uh, sexual abuse or domestic violence or even emotional abuse I suppose? I, I guess it covers all three scenarios.
3: Yeah, well, we have a range of support mechanisms in place, um, ranging from financial support in terms of a salary advance, uh, in terms of redeployment to another facility, in terms of security and safety measures, in terms of um, negotiations with the manager, just to inform them, obviously, with the staff member's consent about the circumstances, the extenuating circumstances they're experiencing. And that may be the reason why their performance hasn't been as good. Their concentration hasn't been as good. They're either always in work or their absence rate is quite high. So it's just about uh, being a supportive employer and ensuring that people are um, feeling feeling that they're valued and that um, you know that we are a supportive employer.
1: And what do you say to staff about how they should approach you? Because obviously it's something that people are going to feel very concerned about raising with their employer.
3: So we, we have a huge uh, communication sort of strategy in terms of we have 15,000 calendars that are printed off every year. And um, that's kind of the calendar there and it has all the um, support details on it. And it's, it's read, readily uh, available and visible within the trust. So every staff member will have one of these on their desk so that it's not something taboo. And there's the QR code to the toolkit And if people don't want to speak to a support officer directly, there's also a a central number which comes into my office and then there's an email address. So there's any range of um, sort of methods that people can contact us. And we also have uh, promotional materials uh, uh, in addition to the calendars, such as leaflets and posters, um, which are displayed across the trust. And then we also deliver awareness sessions um, for people who do want to come along and learn more about the support service.
4: I'd just like to add um, to what Orla shared, a lot of um, the contacts that we will receive will come from trade union colleagues in terms of they will have spoken to a staff member in distress or someone has approached them. And I um, also um would be aware that lots of managers who have been trained um, understand about the policy and they will have those types of conversations in terms of welfare, well-being conversations with a staff member, I noticed that, it's come to my attention, or you don't seem your, um, your usual self, and having those conversations, that's where good management practices come in, and therefore the, the staff member feels psychologically safe to disclose what might be happening outside of work or inside of work. And um, because very often I know um, earlier you said about domestic sexual and um, violence and abuse, which could include emotional abuse, but it's lots of things like financial um, abuse, coercive control. We had someone who was no longer in a relationship, in fact, the relationship had broken up up to 2 years ago and they were subject to um what's what's commonly referred to as revenge porn from that former partner and then cyberbullying whereby um individuals are ta- uh, tracked and um, their phones um their location of their phones etc or they're not permitted to have mobile phones and then clearly um, the intersectionality of all of this, and we have discussed this with colleagues from ethnically diverse background and their experience in terms of um religious cultural um influences, and their experience can be um exacerbated by some of those factors. So it's it's wide ranging. We hear it from lots of sources, and Orla um, and her team have developed the toolkit in such a way that it is future proof, and it, it also meets the current demand. So it's something that we always work. And to review um,
3: and to develop. We have quite close links now with occupational health um, and similar to maternity um, services, they are now going to introduce a routine inquiry, so of, if somebody presents with musculoskeletal issues or low mood or depression, that they will automatically ask everybody who comes into the service is everything all right at home is there anything that you need support with and you know this is a safe space and then they have started to make referrals and into our service as well.
1: Now obviously you're doing this because you're a good employer and you want to help staff feel secure and supported but how common is it I mean is it also because of the frequency with which this is occurring amongst your staff?
3: I think, to be honest, it has probably, demand has increased. It would have been less um, frequent previously, but I do think the promotion of the service and sort of, I suppose, word of mouth and people knowing that it is a safe space, that their information will be treated in confidence and that support mechanisms will be put around them. Um, And I I would say during the pandemic, um, domestic abuse was probably known as the shadow pandemic In terms of people weren't safe at home, which was the the message that was stay home, stay safe, and so that certainly exacerbated um, the prevalence of domestic abuse and we have gotten an awful lot more contacts as a result of that. We do see this as a work-based issue. We are a large
4: employer. We are um, a large public employer, so we utilise taxpayers' monies um, in all that we do. It's really incumbent that we do support our staff in every way. Well-being um, of our staff is key and it is important in terms of we support the people who look after the people. Um, we have an 83% uh, female workforce whilst we recognize domestic violence and sexual abuse isn't exclusive to female victims, that is actually the reality in terms of reported crimes from from, um, PSNI data. So we're a large employer and we see this as our um, contractual responsibilities to look after our staff. Um, And also, as, as Orla said earlier, the toolkit can be utilized by anyone at home on a mobile phone, so you don't have to actually be in work. And it's probable that staff will get peace and quiet outside of work, whereby they don't have to explain anything to a colleague in the first instance to look over it.
3: Interestingly enough, I read recently, Paul, that um, Northern Ireland has the highest um, rate of female murders as a result of domestic abuse alongside Romania. And that's in all of Western Europe, we have the highest rate of murders. So this could be not only... Uh, life-changing, it could be life-saving for somebody just to have that safety net and that work can be their place of sanctuary.
1: Thanks, yes. And and Samantha, I was going to actually specifically ask you, I mean, what's your message to other employers? Uh, I mean, presumably you would say that they would take this, they should take this equally seriously. Is this, is this a toolkit that is available to others? I mean, is it used by the other trusts, for example?
4: It's not currently used by other trusts, but we have shared it um, and we openly share it. We haven't copyrighted, we haven't locked it down so it can only be used by Belfast Trust employees. This can be picked up by any employer. So anyone who owns a sweet shop, for example, could make use of it. Um, all of our resources in terms of our policy, our guidelines, the training that Orla coordinates for teams, um, how we recruit our volunteers, and the work that Orla leads with PSNI, Women's Aid, All of that is directly transferable, and we do openly share that. We have shared it with our regional colleagues who are um, currently developing that within their HSC organizations. It's very much transferable, and that was reflected in in us winning the award in terms of, I suppose, its simplicity. We've done the hard work. We constantly update it. Here you go, share it, uh, and, and share back with us any improvements that we could also utilize. So, it's very much um, a resource to be shared
3: and to be transferred. We couldn't do this without our trade union colleagues, and partnership with them has just been so crucial in getting this and identifying people who, you know, staff members who are experiencing domestic abuse. So, partnership has been key in this.
0: Thank you, Samantha and Orla. That was really interesting. Two kind of key takeaways for me are the collaboration with trade unions. Um, And also the fact that they're offering this toolkit to other employers to use. I really hope that other employers take up this offer and it's something that becomes inbuilt into how we do our HR practice um, to try and support people um, on this really challenging issue. So that marks the end of our episode of Hollywell Trust Conversations. Uh, Thank you to the Community Relations Council for their funding of our podcast. Previous podcast episodes are available on the Hollywell Trust website. Huge thanks to Paul Gosling um, for researching and for hosting with us today.